Welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who's an expert in their field, and together we interview a guest about their work in design. Because design is everywhere, and so are we. This week, we're talking about the future of museums and how the museum experience is being designed and adapted through technology. I'm excited to chat with our guest co-host, who's Brendan Sieco the founder and CEO of QZM, which helps museums, public attractions, and nonprofits engage their visitors and members using the power of digital. And our special guest is Sarah DeYoung, the Director of Visitor Experience and Engagement at the Brooklyn Museum. But before we dive in, I just wanted to thank our members. Thanks for being supporters of Design Museum Everywhere. If you're not a member, check it out. If you love this podcast, you'll love membership. As a member, you get Design Museum Magazine, which is filled with articles and case studies from design thought leaders and change makers around the world. You'll also get access to our live podcast recordings and our monthly Design Museum Live virtual events. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on membership. And with that, on to this week's topic, the future of museums. Back in 2009, when I was working as a designer, my friend and I had this crazy idea to create a traveling design exhibition. We really wanted to showcase the transformative power of design. So along with a few volunteers, my co-founder Derek Cassio and I found a space, raised some money, and created a pop-up design gallery and event programming. Over 10 years later, we've created pop-up exhibitions, educational programs, and this podcast. So obviously being a founder of a museum, I love museums and I know how important crafting a museum experience is. And when I think about my favorite museum experiences, they're the exhibits that transport me to a different time or a place or they tell me a story, they let me interact. And certainly museums exist in the same technology-driven social media world that everything else is existing in. So how are they evolving? How are museums being shaped and designed with technology in mind? And what does the future of museums look like? I'm joined by our special guest co-host this week, Brandon Sieco, to learn more about the intersection of technology, museums, and experiences. Brandon is the CEO and founder of QZM, a very cool company, a platform that helps museums and cultural organizations engage their visitors, members, and patrons. Despite being in his early 30s, Brandon's entrepreneurial spirit spans two decades when he taught himself how to design and program at 11 years old. In 2008, Brendan appeared on the cover of Inc. Magazine as one of America's top entrepreneurs under the age of 30. Before QZM, Brendan started 10 Minute Media, an agency that specializes in digital media and creative services for the music entertainment industry. He currently sits on the steering committee of the Museum Council at the Museum of Fine Arts, Boston, and the Community Advisory Board for the Massachusetts International Festival of the Arts. Brandon's designs drive change at the intersection of culture, technology, art, museums, and startups. Brandon, welcome to the show. It's great to see you. Great to see you too. Thank you for having me, Sam. Yeah, my pleasure. As I was saying before we started, thinking about the future of museums for our listeners' benefit, Brandon and I know each other. I've been following QZM since Brandon started it, been amazed what he was able to do with it. And so I'm excited to learn more and share it with our audience. Thank you. And I've been following what you've been up to for quite some time. And just even before we jump in, I want to say how big of a fan I am of the Design Museum and your work. Um, just for everybody listening, 
Uh, I remember when you ran a Kickstarter That's campaign right. and, and I had just moved to Boston and was so intrigued and inspired by the vision that you had. And, uh, you know, a couple weeks or months after that, there was the big bash at the uh, Boston City Hall. Yep. And uh, it was great to see things come to fruition. So it's amazing how that was the beginning. Yeah, the beginning is something really great. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Diving in, I wanted to get Kind of start with your roots. Uh, I know you grew up in an industrial city in Massachusetts, and we found an interview, I think it was with Artnet, where you talked about that upbringing and how it wasn't until your later teenage years, early 20s, I guess, when your interest and experience and appreciation of art started to like evolve and come into its own. So can you tell us like what impact did museums play in that part of your life? It's really interesting because I feel like so many people who go into the art and cultural realm have some sort of background, familial background or introduction that takes place at a young age. And reality on my end is I, I grew up in Western Mass, the you know middle child of five kids, the son of a plumber and a school bus driver. Going to museums was probably one of the last things on the list, but um I, you know, my my grandparents who lived outside of New York City, I do remember them taking me to, you know, the great museums of New York from a young age and just being really drawn to design and art and uh, those elements, but didn't recognize what I could do with them or really mm. didn't see the, the bigger role they could play in my life. So from you know a fairly young age, I knew I was interested in art and illustration, animation, things of that nature. And then in my teenage years, I started to realize that the things that I was interested could be described in other, other terms in other ways. So design, played a really big role, you know, in all of that. When I look back and think back to those questions you're asked as a child, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, at one point it was, I want to be a painter or an animator. And then it turned into, oh, I want to be an interface designer or, oh, I want to <laughs> design websites or, oh, I want to design these things. But then realizing as I matured and as I had more access to these things in my later teenage years, that there's a lot of intersections between all of them and the same kind of passion and the same type of, you know, beating of the heart that I had towards them were all interrelated. And you really did start your career at like age 13, like as a web designer to the stars, right? You design websites for Slick Shoes and Van Morrison, Lenny Kravitz, Katy Perry. I'm sure our listeners are like, whoa, tell us about the role technology played in consuming the arts or engaging with the arts when you were 13 and when you were designing these websites. Like, how did you think about it back then? Yeah, so putting myself back in the shoes of the first time I interacted with a computer from a young age, I mean, you have to imagine this was pre-internet at your fingertips. And so like everybody, maybe you had access to one computer at the library or, or at your school that could do one thing. And that one thing was Oregon Trail. Um, <laughs> but all, all kidding, all kidding aside, uh, no, it really was Oregon Trail. I played and it. Maybe, you know, the encyclopedia and some other educational elements. But then when the internet came into play, I must have been 11 or 12 years old, really the class assignments or things that we had access to were type to learn, learning your home row key and how to type on a computer and also Yahoo for kids. And when other students would be on Yahoo for kids during the downtime, I found myself on the punk rock websites, the record labels, seeing what was going on in rollingstone.com, reading up on my favorite bands. And that's what ultimately landed me into 
this fascination that I had with what was called Macromedia Flash at the time and kind of this converging of music and video and design and text and and all of these components and seeing that as the sandbox I could only ever dream of, where I could build things, produce things, put things together and give them a life of their own, which was, you know, the early ages of, of the interactive internet. So that for me was probably my first gateway or channel into seeing how experiences were built that were multi-sensory or very visual and unlike the static others at the time. I want to talk about QZM. What was the opportunity you saw with QZM and tell our audience what you all do? Yeah, so at QZM, we help museums and cultural institutions engage their visitors and succeed in the digital age. And we found our way into doing that through everyday technology, like your mobile device, your smartphone, and other similar means, because that's how people communicate, socialize, and see the world. And we wanted to make the museum experience as accessible to every single person who walks through the door, but also easy for museums of different shapes and sizes to get up and running with. And so I had been working with a couple of museums museums kind of on the side of what I was doing with my agency, which was focused on music and entertainment, because I wanted to, you know, fulfill this passion and work in a space and experiment in a space that was that was something that was driving me forward, kind of at, at my soul, at my essence. And so the idea of working with museums was really exciting to me. And I just quickly saw how painful, frustrating and obsolete all of the technology that they had at their disposal was, especially around the on-site experience. These clunky old audio guides, they're kind of the old smelly bowling shoes of the museum world. How do you bring those into you know, the, the current framing, the current era? And so we set out to build a platform that made it really easy, flexible and affordable for institutions of every shape and size to have something in the palm of their visitors' hands, to learn more, to be guided, to be inspired by the collections, the stories of the museum. And that was, you know, that was several, several years ago. It was 2014. And we've been fortunate to serve several hundred cultural institutions ranging from some of the largest in the world to also some of the smallest in the world. And I think that's something that's really beautiful is that we're able to provide these types of tools to a variety of different institutions. I'm curious, because uh, I've also seen you getting into like augmented reality things and more like virtual. Is there too much technology in museums? Not enough? Is there a right amount? Like what, what's the right kind of mix of tangible, digital, or have you found it? Are you searching for it? I think we're all searching for it. And anyone who claims to have an answer to that, you know, is lying because there really is no perfect mix of, of anything. It's all in the eye of the beholder. And I think at the end of the day, your consumer decides your end user, your visitor, they decide what is right for them. And it's about providing them as many on-ramps or opportunities into the experience as possible. There are always going to be visitors that prefer nothing, no mediation. They don't want to read the object labels. They don't want to read the gallery guides. They don't even want to talk to people. You know, they don't want to go on a tour. Now, there are going to be people that are they are interested, they want to learn more, but they they don't want to book a time or be walked around with a, with a docent. They want it all kind of in their control. And then there are people that just have different learning styles. And so that's that's great. And it's a museum's you know, obligation or responsibility, I think, to accommodate all of these different learning styles and preferences. So I would never be you know, critical of, you know, too much or too little. It's a balancing act based on the community, the needs of the community. That's the search that everybody is certainly on. And it's it's an exciting and interesting conversation because for so long it has been kind of deeply rooted in tradition that museums are these 
sacred institutional places, and you cannot disrupt them with anything new or shiny or that has a screen on it, keep them pure, keep them what they were intended to be. And I think that is something that I have some issue with just based on things need to evolve. You need to evolve to survive, but you need to evolve to accommodate the needs of a changing demographic and you know, changing audience. And it's in your best interest to keep your ear to the ground and, and not put your head in the sand. And so that's where I think it's interesting just to look at the cultural mindset shift of institutions around how, how do we embrace change? How do we be more visitor you know, driven and visitor centered when we make decisions about what we are going to do? And that's really important. Let's talk more about that because I'm curious when you're thinking about the future of museums and that whole experience, what do you think needs to change and evolve, but what should maybe stay the same? Or maybe to your point, is this real, you know, depends on the type of museum and the type of community? Yeah, really, it's really going to depend on the community. And my answer to this would probably be greatly, greatly different if you asked me in February uh, (laughs) of 2020. um, I mean, the pandemic has certainly had a tremendous impact on the ways museums think of their role in society and as physical and digital entities. And so that's something that's been really wild and, and exciting to watch you know, evolve over the last uh, year or so. And also it's become an accelerator and an accelerant to any form of change, whether that be social change, political change, hierarchical change, policies on collecting and deaccessioning work. Like there's all of these policies that have been kind of spun around on their heads. And certainly digital is probably one of the easier ones of that, um, given if, if an organization you know, has the desire to reach more audience members and to make it easier for people to make a donation or sign up or subscribe for digital content, whatever it might be. It's clear that when physical is not an option and like the on-site experience is not an option, you need to step up to other ways people are consuming and experiencing social experience and experiencing content and knowledge and education and all things in between. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I was curious if you could share a good example of a museum that's sort of embracing the future, embracing change and technology, and maybe paint us a picture of what what it's like. Oh my God, that's a that's a whirlwind of a question. So basically, just to even take a couple steps back during the pandemic, we had never hosted webinars, and we decided to host our first webinar. 4,400 people registered for our first webinar. And about 40 webinars later, we had had, you know, 90,000 listens and registrations and so on, where we brought on museum leaders and museum professionals week after week to have similar conversations. And so I've heard and seen so many inspiring examples of museums taking, you know, several steps forward around how they're thinking about their on-site experience, service design, virtual content all around the board. So I would not be able to name one specific museum. I will say, uh, because you have someone from the Brooklyn Museum coming on this particular podcast, that they've always done a great job over the last 10 years. I mean, the Brooklyn Ask Project and some of the other experiments that they've shown leadership in, they have a really great you know, sense of thinking about these things and also kind of open sourcing not only the work that they do, but open sourcing their thought process 
and their audience research, which I think is a, is a great thing to do for the elevation of the community's understanding of what it takes to make a great museum experience. So I'm not going to point to one single museum because uh, there's so many great, passionate people in the space doing amazing things. I, I do think you know, the pandemic so horrible and there's so many terrible things around it. But I have seen, and I'm curious if you've seen this as well, that it was a little bit of a kick in the pants to evolve these experiences and honestly to make them more accessible. And I think that's probably what you all were thinking about and talking about in those webinars. What have you seen in terms of museums evolving to meet this moment? Oh, I mean, it's been a huge jump forward in terms of the, the adoption of new technology from an institutional priority standpoint. And so it's like right before the pandemic, there was a survey that went out to top art museum directors in North America. And in terms of things that were deemed a priority, it's like less than, I don't know, it's like less than like 30 or 40% of these directors saw digital and remote access as any form of a priority for the next couple of years. And then juxtaposing that to where we are today, I mean, we, we just finished up a survey earlier in the year with 500 plus, you know, museum professionals that contributed to to this uh, to this research, and it was like 94 percent or 92 percent of museums were offering virtual content in some way, shape, or form. And so it was almost like a a rapid shift in oh, we got to do this now, and so let's let's build it while we're doing it, and and figure out what best practices are. By doing it, and the, what I loved about that moment is that there were no best practices. Every it was a it was an unforeseen moment. It was a pandemic. No one knew what would work, what wouldn't at that moment in time. You know, given the you know the global health and the yeah. political and the social you know events that were taking place around the world, it was very much a constantly shifting and an evolving reality. And what I loved was seeing organizations experiment and some really interesting things happening in small museums that could move very quickly and interesting things that were happening in larger museums that had the resources to put things out to a, you know, to an audience that was ready, you know, ready to dive into the content. Yeah. Oh, thank you. This was a great conversation, Brendan. And as you said, We'll bring Sarah from the Brooklyn Museum on in a minute. But thank you again for sharing all your thought leadership. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Listeners, to see more of Brendan's work, visit qzm.com. We'll post the link and stay with us. We'll chat with Sarah in a minute. If you enjoy this podcast, why not be part of the live podcast recording? That's right. You get to see a live recording and ask your questions via Zoom to our guests. Each month, we host a live show, and the edited episode is aired in our weekly program. That's right. In the past, we've had conversations around equity in the workplace, sustainable design materials, and making social impact through graphic design. Our guests have included spoken word artists like architect Jadee Williams, Thought Matters Jesse McGuire, and our very own Director of Learning and Interpretation, Diana Navarrete-Rakakis. Check out designmuseumeverywhere.org and become a member today to attend our next live show. See you there. We're back and we're joined by our special guest, Sarah DeYoung, the Director of Visitor Experience and Engagement at the Brooklyn Museum, where she crafts accessible and engaging visitor experiences. Sarah is also an assistant professor and curriculum coordinator at Pratt Institute and is responsible for helping to raise awareness in the field of Pratt's new graduate program in museums and digital culture. 
Previously, Sarah was the senior content developer and project manager at Hilferti, a museum planning and design firm in Ohio. And in 2016, she and her team won the Muse Gold Award for mobile application for their work on Ask, an app that allows visitors to learn more and get the most out of their visit to the Brooklyn Museum. Sarah's designs explore the intersection of digital and museum. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted. Yeah, I'm a big fan of what you all are doing at the Brooklyn Museum. So, you know, let's let's dive into it. Sweet. I'd love to hear about how you approach the craft of designing an experience for visitors, especially when there's such a range of exhibitions happening at any given time. Like, is there a thread throughout it? How do you think about those touch points that together become the experience? You know, it's an interesting conversation we have even with within the Brooklyn Museum of visitor experience is actually everything, right? So I might have that in my title and kind of am one of the keepers of creation of a visitor experience. Everyone is part of that. Everyone is part of that. Our security guards, the visitor services team, our curators, our educators, our technologists, we all create that visitor experience. And the main shift that I've seen in my time in the field, um, you know, I entered the field in, well, I, I exited grad school in 2006, so sort of officially entered the field in 2006. So right at the cusp of social media be starting to be a thing. And the shift that I've really seen is that when I first entered the field, when we talked about visitor experience, we meant entry to exit of the physical building. And that is not the case anymore um, because so many of our visitors to arts and cultural spaces only visit us digitally. They may never be able to walk through our doors. And if the past year has shown us anything, you know, we've gone through this existential crisis of who are museums if we can't welcome people through physical doors and show people physical things. Um, but anyway, I digress. So um, how do we knit it together? You know, it's an interesting thing. And I think one of my learnings is that we spend a lot of time trying to craft something that that feels very purposeful and together and I almost feel like we do too much of that in the sense that I don't think most visitors notice. <laughs> like in all seriousness, I can give a, a great example of just basic exhibition design. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we help people understand they've moved, say, from one theme to another theme within an exhibition space. We've tried titles. We try wall color. We try all this stuff. Um, and frankly, the only thing that seems to consistently make visitors think that they've moved into a different space is actual physical doors. And sometimes those doors are within an exhibition. So we can't even help them understand that they're in the same, they're actually in the same space, yeah. you know, the same thematic space. So I think it's one of the things we try to do because we want to provide a thoughtful experience. But I also think that we spend a lot of time creating things that I don't think most visitors even necessarily knit together or care that much. I think it's okay. Well, I want to I want to ask because it's specific to something that the Brooklyn Museum has done in the last year, especially in this moment where things have shifted towards digital in an unbelievable way. You know, my hats off to to you and your team and the Brooklyn Museum at large, um, not only because I was a huge fan of the Queen's Gambit, but because <laughs> I thought the not <laughs> because I thought the partnership with Netflix and um, an exhibition that tied into, you know, kind of where the pulse was from a popular culture perspective, looking at the fashion and recreating what would have physically existed in a virtual 
way. So I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about any learnings that, that you and your team and, and Brooklyn Museum at large had. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the Queen's Gambit, the, the sort of online exhibition uh, was a partnership with Netflix. And I will say they took the lion's share of the work in that um, and created the vision. And we literally have a single web developer. We have one web developer right now who's trying to do everything right. So, you know, we're, we're a very small but mighty team and that's always been true. But unfortunately with COVID, that's even more true. Right. Um, um, and so, you know, we're bouncing back, but it takes time. So, uh, they took the lion's share of that work and definitely did all the dev work, which is great. Um, but it's also one of those things I think to your point, Brendan is, is Netflix came to us and we knew a good thing when we saw it, right? I think it's that combination. And what I loved about that partnership is it picked up in the digital realm some of the in-person exhibitions we've been doing. We recently have now our our former head of design, Matthew Yakubowski, is now the curator of... I think it's senior curator, but it's of um, fashion and material culture is the focus. And so... We've, we've shifted our focus to include a broader definition of art. And I think that sort of kicked off with the David Bowie's exhibition a couple years ago that we took in. Um, and we did a Frida Kahlo exhibition that focused on, it was really about her life, but her, her clothing was part of that different curatorial team, but still. Um, we've had a couple of different exhibitions focusing on fashion and culture. And so this project felt like a good combination, um, when we couldn't provide anything you know, physical for people to, to provide. And, and actually <laughs> I can say this now because we finally have uh, announced the show, but we're taking um, and working with the, the house of Dior to do Christian Dior's D- designer of dreams exhibition is opening in September. And it's actually because of the queen's gambit digital exhibition. They saw the Beaux-Arts court used in this way. And are like, oh my gosh, we have to do this show. Uh, and we and we'd been working with them and hoping to to come up with a, a show together, but that space, they're like, no, we've got to have that space. So interestingly, a space that we have never turned over in that way, <laughs> the like we're deinstalling the um, uh, European art collection and going to put in a ticketed exhibition in that space and use it in a way we've never used, and that's actually because we did it digitally first. That at least one thing that I've, you know, for a design museum. We've seen so much success in, be, in being a participatory platform for partnership. And that just seems to be one of the future elements of museums to kind of, you, you mentioned this a bit, Brendan, in terms of like creating those on-ramps for audience. How do you create those on-ramps for partnership so that the museum is a little bit more permeable? You know, I, I will say our director, Anne Pasternak, is she's smart and she's visionary and she she understands what it means to work with um, a variety of partners. Um, I will say it's an and we've had some great partnerships, too. We've done partnerships with Adidas. We've done partnerships with Spotify. Um, and at the same time, I will say it can. I mean, I'm just now speaking for myself personally. It can be tricky when it's part rental part partnership part exhibition and who has what cure you know curatorial control etc um and you know we stand by everything that we do and so you know we're not going to say yes to something we don't agree with and at the same time we ran into this with a it was a spotify rap caviar activation that was really cool and it had these cool sculptures of um cardi b and a couple of other artists and we it was literally a rental we didn't really do anything we just gave them space but everybody's like oh where's that exhibit at the brooklyn museum so there was no and that's kind of why i'm saying like visitors i don't know that they pick up on all the nuances we try to put up put down is that they didn't care or know that it wasn't actually us 
it was Spotify and we were just giving them space. But it was an exhibition at the Brooklyn Museum. Yeah, I love this point you're making about just getting in touch with the reality of people experiencing a space, experiencing experiences where maybe that's so don't need to be so defined and strategic. <laughs> but I think you can be strategic about being open, right? And that's, I think, a really interesting, because I'm with, right there with you at Design Museum. We and, and Brendan mentioned this around different types of the ways that people experience exhibitions and experiences. Like we try to think through like, how's the kinetic learner going to be here? And maybe we're discounting like the subconscious value of some of these things, but there is some value in thinking about really how people experience space and how they're just, they're there, they're in an open, let them wander. I mean, that's, that's really cool. We've talked about serendipity and discovery a lot. And, and at the same time, you know, I don't know about, about you, Sam, Brendan, I'm constantly still surprised. I've been doing this for 15 plus years and visitors still surprise the heck out of me all the time by behaving in ways I didn't think they would. Um, and so, you know, even with all my, I'll put expertise in air quotes, I have some expertise and I'm still surprised. So, you know, and it's one of the things I love about the job, but, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time in educated guesswork. I think, really. And I think that's totally the right way of going about it. I remember, Sarah, I think you had presented at Museum MCN or one of these conferences about, you know, being more agile and, and starting with MVPs and going beyond that. Because I think one of the challenges and one of the things that I think organizations have been having difficulty with for so long is because there's a perfectionist mindset. Um, you kind of overbuild or overanalyze analysis paralysis, get too many committees involved versus saying, let's start small. Let's see how real human beings, because we are not our target audience. Let's see how real human beings interact with this physical or digital thing and then go from there. And so it looks like Brooklyn Museum's done a really great job with that over, over the years and have shared a lot of those learnings with with the community but uh i think that serendipity and the fact that people will do as people do if people want to think there's a cardi b exhibition they'll do it and they'll you know it will be an edge case but it will happen i think that trying to prepare for all of those is impossible so just start small and see how people respond yeah it's a real push and pull i think to and it, it's so I've accidentally spent most of my career at an art museum. I'm not, I, I still don't consider myself an art person, which is funny. I mean, more so certainly than I was 10 years ago when I started the museum. But um, I came from material culture, from um, uh, Smithsonian natural history, historic houses, nature centers. So a little less academic, a little more hands-on spaces generally. And so it was a real shock to, to have to really consider even within an agile framework, just how polished it needed to be even to test because we are an art museum and beauty is important and et cetera. And it's, it's not that it's not in those other spaces. It's just becomes such a, a high level in terms of that. Then again, I talked to colleagues in other institutions. I think all museums face the, the, um, the perfect being the enemy of the good in terms of just trying to get something out in people's hands. And it's like, it's not going out in the world. I literally want to take a paper prototype and talk to 10 people like, you know, in the galleries, we do get in our own way occasionally with that, I think. Yeah. I want to talk about how we make museum experiences more relevant to these modern audiences. Brendan, I chatted about it a little bit, but let's dive right into the Ask app and what that's all about, how it works for our listeners who haven't heard about it. Can you share sort of what need it was responding to and how it all worked? Yeah, definitely. So Ask has been around 
heaven help me, we launched in 2015. So it's been around for a while, actually. Um, so this was a project that was uh, led by our former director of technology, Shelly Bernstein. Um, she and I led this project. And we really started out trying to figure out what our visitors wanted and needed from us. Um, and we did a series. I'm going to, I'm going to give you the, the short, the short version. Um, <laughs> we did it and you know, for more, read the blog, uh, which goes into it in depth more than anyone probably wants to know. Um, so we started by a series with a series of short pilot projects and we did run the, the project in, in an agile, what I kind of call agile light, because it wasn't a serious agile, but it was really focused on, on sprints and testing and iteration. And we spent time in the galleries, uh, observing visitors and then talking to visitors, making notes about where they were asking questions, what ask, what questions were they asking us about, et cetera. And through a series of pilot projects, figured out that our visitors were hungry for information about art. They wanted to talk to somebody about it. They wanted information uh, that was personalized. Um, we did a test where we tried to do a kind of, if you like this, you'll also like that combination. And it backfired. People hated it. Um, they didn't understand. They just didn't want the canned content, um, but they loved the conversation part. And so after a couple of tests, Shelly came into my office one day and was like, I think I've figured out what this could be. What if we give them access to an expert by texting? Because they loved having a person in the galleries to talk to, but we have a 560,000 square foot building. There was, we had temporarily hired 18 people to be in the galleries to talk and do these evaluations and to talk and write down notes. And, you know, it's still like finding a needle in a haystack if you wanted to talk to somebody. And what we've batted around the idea of a, a art historian slash guard approach, you know, security guard approach, which some museums have done, um, that wasn't going to be feasible for us. And so, so Shelly had the brainwave that maybe technology could broker that conversation and allow us to scale access to a human. Uh, and so we tested that idea with iMessage, actually. We were generously funded by Bloomberg Philanthropies. Um, and of course, this was right at the time where they were really digging into their Bloomberg Connects project. They had just launched Beyond Tate Moderns and the original Bloomberg Connects at Tate and started funding a bunch of things. We were one of the lucky ones. And after testing that concept with members, and then we intercepted a few visitors to do the test too. We handed them iPods. We had iMessage going. We had our chief curator, like, talking to us over his sh over our shoulders because he couldn't type that fast. So we'd fire the question verbally. He'd tell us and we would type the responses. Um, anyway, and then we sat down with people and we talked to them about it and it hit all the notes we were looking for. They still felt it. They felt it was personal because they could ask questions directly. They actually didn't know who was behind the keyboard at first. Um, they were, they thought it was great that it was a curator when they found out, but they also were just assumed it was someone that knew something. So that was cool. Goes back um, to that, you know, how they experience things. <laughs> exactly. So the museum voice X is museum voice X. Um, plus as, as you know, right, if you work in a museum, you're either a curator or a security guard. Cause those are the only two jobs anybody <laughs> knows in a museum setting. I love that. Um, so, but anyway, um, Long story long, I was supposed to do a short version of this, long story long, um, we tested texting and it worked. And so we decided to develop, in the end, we did we did decide to develop an app. We did it in-house. Um, we thought about trying texting only, but what we wanted on the back end was a dashboard that could roughly locate people to pull up the, the collection that's in that space. So the people answering the questions could know where somebody was and know what artwork was on view in that space. 
Um, that being said, we have circled back to texting and offer just texting because the team behind the app knows the museum and the collection so well now that they don't really need to rely on the beacons. And so it's been an interesting thing to to sort of reboot it after COVID. Yeah, I was curious, how's it evolved? What's the state of the, the program now? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've landed on a, a combination that works well. Um, I think in a lot of ways, we still haven't quite found the secret sauce and we don't nail every time which shows are gonna be the ones where people are chatty. We are pretty good at figuring out the ones where people won't be chatty. Um, and it does have a lot to do with things like design. If it's dark, um, the fashion exhibitions for the most part, for example, don't tend to get a lot of chatter because um, it's it, the lighting is different and it's, it's a different kind of experience. Scavenger hunts go really well. Uh, the team has come up actually with a scavenger hunt that will take you through the entire building if you want. And they've got these amazing clues. It was initially aimed at kids, but a lot of adults do it too. Um, and that's not so much of a surprise because we did see in one of our pilot tests uh, where we were trying to send people to recommended objects. Some people took it as a like collect all 12 game and like did it that way. So the gamifying it is not a huge surprise, but people have, have picked up on it. And I think the idea that it's your own device has a little bit of renewed energy in in COVID and post-COVID times. So that's been an interesting thing to see. Um, but I will say we we tend to promote texting way more than the app now because people are still generally hesitant to download a single-use app, and that's always been a struggle. Sarah, what have been some of your sources of inspiration, both inside and outside of the museum field? What are you looking for? What are you watching? What are you reading? What's kind of driving that forward-looking perspective? Yeah, that is so interesting. So I've been shifting a little bit of my perspective to thinking more, in a way, more topically. Um, and I say that because at the museum over the last year, we have done a lot of soul searching and we already have done a lot on art and social justice, but are really wanting to lean into that a lot more. Um, and we think it's a space that the Brooklyn Museum is uniquely suited to do. And so I've been paying a lot more attention to the activism and social movements in terms of how people correspond, how they gather, how they garner, how they have a shared purpose, uh, what brings people together in those spaces virtually in person what role can museums play? Should museums play? Do community members even want museums to play? Museums are obviously have a deep-seated white colonialist history. How do we unpack that and how do we, can we even be in this space in a way that makes sense if we are the man, as it were, right? Like, how does that work? Um, so, so that, but that I have to say in watching over the last year, watching people struggling to gather in person, what roles have social media and other platforms play to create community during the pandemic and as the, the rebirth and, and strengthening of Black Lives Matter and other activist movements. So I've been paying a lot of attention to that. Um, I have to admit I have been complete. So I do follow and I, I love Jim Richardson um, from Museum Next and I, ha and I do kind of always look forward to whatever digests they send out in their, their newsletters. And I have to say I've been a little bit surprised, although maybe that's my naivete, that AR and VR are circling back as like big attention grabbers right now. And I say that um, AR less so because it's a personal device thing. But the VR that requires the headsets, I, I think it's fascinating that people don't 
I think we're assuming nobody's going to mind shared stuff again. Um, like COVID didn't quite last long enough to do that code switch. I wonder, um, because AR less so, cause you, you know, bring your own device. That's fine. You can do it. And it doesn't, it, it's a low bar to entry. VR is a much higher bar to entry. So I'm always surprised to see that circling back. I think a lot of people merge XR kind of any form of emerging, merging technology. I, I feel very similarly to you, um, that I am very, very bullish on augmented reality per the nature of being on your own device and easily accessible versus VR. Most people do not have the headset. And even if it's on site, there's the hesitation around this, you know, the shared piece of hardware and kind of the antisocial or seemingly antisocial nature or isolated nature of it. So I, I think we're on the same similar page there. I feel like such an old fuddy-duddy because with my students, they're so often excited by the that entire realm, of, that entire XR realm. And I'm always kind of like, yeah, meh. Can you describe for our listeners how AR would even work in the museum? Yeah. So, I mean, I've seen it in other contexts and, you know, we get pitches all the time for it. Um, so the kinds of things most people try to sell us, and it usually is a sales pitch, is the kind of thing that is... Something like the original Cleveland's Gallery 1, where you would hold up your device and it would read, say, the painting. Of course, the 3D read is getting much, much better. Um, <laughs> but uh, say, hold it up to, to a painting and it reads that painting and then pop up windows of more information, et cetera, et cetera. So it basically becomes an extended or digital label. Thank you for that. Thanks for being here and sharing your expertise. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Listeners, to see more of Sarah's work, visit brooklynmuseum.org. And now it's that time, my favorite time of the week. Each week we share our weekly dose of good design, our favorite examples of good, thoughtful design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will kick us off. This week, I saw a really cool post about these amazing troll sculptures by Thomas Dambo. Thomas is a recycle artist based in Denmark, and he has created these giant troll sculptures that exist in forests around the world from China to Puerto Rico, and now in coastal Maine. The trolls are made of scrap wood, and they sort of, I guess, look like where the wild things are, you know, if that book had giant forest trolls. And they each have their own personality, and Thomas writes fairy tales and backstories for each one, each is sort of inspired by different types of trees and parts of trees. He created the first troll in 2014 named Hector the Protector, which sits on a Puerto Rican island uh, of Culebra. Hector sort of sits there on the water's edge, protecting the island. And I just love the style and the backstories, the way the trolls fit into the landscape. It's like they're real, like they live there. And they're sometimes performing little actions like Hector is holding a lantern. Actually, it's a solar powered lantern. So ships can actually see Hector, uh, his, his lantern. And then there's one who's, it looks like he's just tugging a big bucket of water through the woods. Or there's one that was, it's in the mountains in Colorado. And the whole backstory is the troll sees all these mountains. And so he wants to build his own mountain. So this troll is actually stacking rocks into like this big pile pyramid of rocks. So they're extremely lifelike and have these like very expressive faces, even though these things are, you know, 30 feet tall and made out of wood. Check out trollmap.com and you can see all the trolls around the world, read their backstories. And if you are in the New England area, you can see his latest creations 
in Booth Bay, Maine at the Coastal Maine Botanical Gardens. Brendan, you are up. What's your weekly dose of good design? So something that I saw recently that completely blew my mind and I can't remember where I came across it was there is a family office of the founder of Nintendo, Yamauchi. And they have this website, Yamauchi number 10 family office, which is such a fun, funny name, uh, y-n10.com. And this website is set up like a video game. It's in isometric view. It has Nintendo style music and just a really interesting energy that would typically be the opposite of what a family office or like an instant a foundation or an institution's website should look like. And I was just really taken aback and, and excited by the the creativity of it all. And there was a line on that website, which is a journey to explore. Um, anyways, that said, fear only kills seeds of innovation. And this group, this family's goal is to invest and to support and donate to things that truly, you know, change society for the better. So I thought it was such a cool website. But can I give two other things? And yeah. I'll be super yeah, short. Yeah, jump in. It's all so good. A book that recently came out that I started reading is The Entrepreneur's Weekly Nietzsche, a book for disruptors. It's by Brad Feld and Dave Yilk. And one thing that I love aside from German philosophy, is that they have commissioned an illustrator for every chapter. So at the beginning of every chapter, there's this, there's a, you know, a unique illustration, then they write the Nietzsche quote, and then they write what it actually translates into, into today's modern language. And then they will share an entrepreneurial narrative about something that weaves in between some of those thoughts and concepts. So it's a super cool book. And then lastly, there's an artist, a visual artist, a painter that I've been absolutely loving and following for many, many years that's been getting more and more limelight more recently named Eva Yuskevich. And she creates these historical portraits, kind of these old masters, but then infuses the faces and obscures the faces with organic forms. And every time I see a new work of hers posted or, or in the art news, it just like blows my mind. I think she's a remarkable painter and uh, would love to see her work you know, in every museum that I walk into. It's just, it's amazing when you find a, a work of art or a painting or a design or something that you have an emotional reaction to that this is pure beauty or this is pure bliss. And, and her work certainly does that for me. I love it. Oh, those are great. And we'll post links to all of those. Listeners, if you have a great weekly dose of good design, I'd love to hear it and share it. So you can tweet or share those with me on Twitter at Sam Aquilano. And Brendan, thank you so much for being here. It was so great to chat with you and catch up and have you share your thought leadership around the future of museums. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. Again, I'm a big fan of Design Museum and uh, really enjoyed having this conversation today about the future of museums. That's our show. I want to thank again, Brendan Sieco, Sarah DeYoung. Thank you both for joining us and thank you all for listening. We'll post links to the resources we discussed today on our episode page visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. If you want to see more from Design Museum Everywhere, check out our traveling exhibition, Bespoke Bodies, the Design and Craft of Prosthetics, which will be free and on view August 16th to October 10th at the Jossiloff Gallery at the University of Hartford 
in West Hartford, Connecticut. This is our first in-person exhibition in over a year, and we're really excited to have you join us. So check out designmuseumeverywhere.org for all the details. You can always find the latest from the Design Museum on social media. On Twitter, we're at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at Design Museum Everywhere. We're also on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. We have an awesome weekly email newsletter you can sign up for on our website and always have the latest from the museum. This episode was written, edited, and produced by Amor Yates with production assistance by Ryan Flom, additional editing and research support by Emily Roberts and Tanya Chabla. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave. For the entire team here at Design Museum Everywhere, thanks for being here and we'll talk again next week.